Ever feel like life, family, and even church can get a little out of control? We're here to make real life simple. Welcome to the Rest of George Podcast. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast. We are pleased to welcome Judd Wilhite. Um, Judd, for our listeners who may not be aware of who you are, and, and that may not be many because you're so famous, um, would you just give us a, a quick uh, tutorial on who you are, where you came from, where you are today, married, kids, all of that? Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm from uh, Las Vegas, been out uh, in, in the Las Vegas area at Central Church for 15 years, married to Lori for uh, 21 years. Two kids, uh, my daughter uh, 17 and my son is 14. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we're loving uh, loving life, trying to do it together and uh, navigating all the craziness of uh, raising teenagers. So that's, that's sort of where we're at. Wow, so two teenagers, that's the same boat that I'm in right now, but I have two girls, so the drama's a little higher. Yes. Um, a lot of walks with my dog, that seems to help things out. Um, okay, so with uh, being in Vegas, You've been at Central Church for 15 years, church of 20 plus thousand people, 12 campuses. Um, How do you make time for family life? And what are some practices you've learned along the way that make family a priority rather than just kind of, um, we'll catch up when we can? Yeah, I feel like for us, um, I've learned through my mistakes probably more than my successes. and. I had a few of those moments that were that were life defining. Like I remember walking past my wife on the phone once with with like her best friend, and I overheard her. I wasn't listening in. I just overheard her mm-hmm. randomly, promise. <laughs> and she said, uh, "You know, I just feel like a single mom." Wow. She said, "You know, Judd's not around, and when he's around, he's emotionally not around." Mm-hmm. And, so that was scary for me, a wake-up call, and we sat down and talked afterwards. And kind of around that same time, I remember my my daughter, she was young, she, uh, uh, she looked up at me one day and she said, Dad, uh, what are you doing home? I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> what am I doing home? And she said, well, it's bright outside. Wow. And she's like, you, you know, this is, this is different. So I had a few of those sort of wake-up call moments, like yeah. I'm, I am, I am very, it is very within all of our power to lose the hearts of our kids and to lose touch with our marriage in short order if we're not intentional. And so I've learned through my mistakes more than my successes. I made some changes out of that. A few of those changes, you know, they're not rocket science. It was more about doing them than knowing them. But I would say for us, it was. Um, I tried to be home more nights a week than I was gone. That was one of my big priorities. I uh, couldn't always do it, but just tried to be out of seven nights, mm-hmm. tried to be home more than gone uh, for my kids' sake. Uh, I tried to, and I realized like life comes in seasons. You know, when, you're, when your kids are little, that's a season and it's not forever. And when that season changes, that dynamic may need to change. But, mm-hmm. but uh, that was huge for us. And then we, we've done date nights. Uh, we actually did date mornings because... Uh, we couldn't afford to navigate all the things related to sitters and all of that mm-hmm. to get away. But when both of our kids finally got in school, Friday morning became that time. We both took them to school. They were in class, and we had, you know, until school got out. So we've just kept that for years. So mm. every Friday morning we get breakfast, and sometimes we'll catch a movie. Sometimes we'll walk around. Sometimes we'll go shopping. 
Uh, sometimes we end up at the grocery store, unfortunately, because yeah. that's how boring we are. But uh-huh. you know, yeah, I find that a lot of our dates turn into errands. Yes, but we're together. The Target run. That's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I've spent many hours in Target. The Target run. But it's an upgrade from Walmart, so that's I feel right. like it's a little bit, you know, a little bit more chic to be in Target. But we have to be intentional, and that Lori and I, my wife, you know, I feel like we we have to just keep making it a priority. Right now, we're using a book by a friend of ours. Uh, he just released a couple workbooks called uh, Five Dates. Okay. Uh, Mike Foster. Yeah. And um, so it's really simple, but it's basically a framework for five dates that you take with your spouse. That's a great idea. And so there's a his book with less words, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like literally a lot less words. It's and, and they're not really books. It's more like questions you talk about on the date, few right. questions and some ideas. And then there's a her book and a workbook, whatever. So that's been really cool. We're just getting into that. We're a few dates in. Right. And, uh, yeah. How, you, you mentioned this a little bit ago, when you're home, you're not emotionally home. Um, I find that making time to be home is not the hardest thing to do. It's kind of shutting off your mind when you're there from work and being engaged. Any skills or practices you've learned along the way to help that happen? I think for me, the way I get home has a lot to do with my mental state when I'm at home. And so a simple practice that I engage in is um, you know I'll often when I'm driving away from from work I'll just open my hand palm up and just sort of give all of the stuff that I am carrying on my shoulders to God you know like a mm. it's like a a discipline to say God I'm, I'm giving you my work I'm giving you my fears I'm giving you this staff situation that I don't understand I'm giving you the future that I can't control and and um, just that act I think has helped me be a little bit more in the now when I walk through the door. Otherwise, I just walk through the door like a stress machine mm. and that's no good. And then sometimes I want my my spouse to feel my stress, if I'm honest, because I want her to carry some, to know the weight that I'm carrying. And mm-hmm. I had to realize like that's not realistic. It's not even healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be taking the weight off of others, you right. know, in my family instead of wanting them to Right. Here, I want you to grind with this a little bit and feel the weight on your sh- you feel that? You know like like somehow that's not going to help. Right. And um, so that's been a simple discipline that that I've done that's I think helped me walk through the door. Uh, a little different. And then I just think I try to be really intentional about what I talk about. So my wife always wants to know, like, how was work? What what happened? What's going on here and there? And I just try to be wise about not going down some of those roads um, in that moment when I'm tired and I'm worn out, un- unless it's you know really something I need to talk about. So mm. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's such a good word for pastors, especially because uh, we, we come home and and there's that delicate dance of how much do we share, you know, because it's it's my job and I'll get over some stuff. But for our spouse, it's their it's their church and they're not going to get over some stuff. Yeah. And they're going to look at people differently or be bitter about some people that were angry towards us. Um, and, and especially with our kids, you want your kids to grow up where they love the church and they don't hate it because it stole their dad or because it hurt their family. How have you found the the right words to say about the church, yet realizing that it's not perfect? Well, I, I think you know we're just uh, we try to be honest, but I think just try to be selective as well. And uh, so I, 
you know, for years early in our marriage, I, I didn't share anything. I mean, I was highly confidential with everything and still am when it comes to people, but I, I probably undershared to the point that I'm not sure my wife felt like we were in it together at any level. Mm-hmm. So that that's one mistake I made, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I've opened up a little bit more to share some of that, you know, dynamic, but a lot of it, I think it works well for us when, as we've just learned, and I think this applies to any marriage or any relationship with somebody uh, who, who's coming home with things from work. Like you want to hear about what's going on at work enough to know like what this person you love does all day and what they're experiencing. Right. But at least for me, you know, when Lori listens, that's all I need. I really don't want input. I'm not looking for coaching. I don't have a problem I need to solve. Like I'm, I'm approaching this more like just listen and just say, great, mm-hmm. good enough. I'll ask you if I really need your advice on something, but it's just right. realizing that's a time to share life. One, one of the things that we do is we started exercising together and that was interesting and we don't do it faithfully all the time, but I really enjoy those times we're out walking or even jogging. Um, we're talking. You know, and so you're just talking about life, day-to-day stuff. And I feel like that's been mm-hmm. uh, really helpful for us. Now, you're not from California, right? Texas, originally. Which makes you a Cowboys fan. Yes. Okay. Quick. And a Raiders fan now. Well, they're coming to you Vegas. don't have to do that. Yeah, okay? no, I have to. No, I mean, only if Derek Carr goes to your church. Well, so. yeah. Because <laughs> he's tithing. Hey, right the now. Cowboys have been horrible and choked for so long that I'm due up for a new team anyway, although I, I picked the least uh, popular franchise in the NFL. But well, know. I would tell you that I, I can sympathize with you because I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, and it seems like for both of our franchises, we're not great, we're not the Cleveland Browns, we're, we're just Browns. somewhere in the middle of mediocrity, which makes it interesting, <sighs> and then we don't get good draft picks. Yeah. That's uh, that's real. And then there's the New England Patriots. Who, oh, does anybody? My. Are there any fans left? Like, you know, <laughs> after you win everything again and again and again and again, you know, at what point does everybody just go like, we don't care anymore? Right. Yes, you're the best ever. Right. So what? I remember how excited I was the first time they won the Super Bowl because it yeah. was so unknown. It's amazing. They came out together as a team. Now it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Like, why watch? Yeah. <laughs> We've seen this 57 times. We were all Eagles fans a few weeks ago. Yes, we were, which is a big statement for me. <laughs> oh, that's that's a big deal. That's a rival. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. who's going. Whoever's going up against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That's right. Okay, three three things to fix the Cowboys. Uh, yeah, I have no earthly idea, honestly. Like, I, I really, um, I don't know. It's just, uh, I think the NFL is really hard. And I, 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 you know, I think it's... Um, incredibly challenging and a lot of things have to work together you know to get to the top of that league and so for whatever reason the quarterback coaching staff ownership mix has not quite all come together in such a way to take that team to that level they've been close they have been close. they've been close enough that you then you don't want to blow it all up but right anyway. That's that's the biggest curse of, of any professional sports team. Okay, so let's talk about church for a minute because here you are, uh, and I, this wasn't your intent. It just happened. God used it. God did it. You wake up one day, and your church is over 20,000 people. You're in several different countries. You have 12 different campuses. Um, you're doing great things not only in the city of Las Vegas but around the world. Is there a point where 
people looking at the church go, okay, that's just too big. That's just ridiculous. And is there a point as a pastor you think, maybe we need to think differently about this? Or, and is there a trend right now in churches where big is no longer what we're looking for? Mm. And, and the naysayers always come at places like yours and, and even ours to some degree and say, well, that's just a, it's a, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. We're interested in depth and not, not size. What do you say to that? And how should people shift their thinking when it comes to large churches? Well, I think um, size isn't you know the ultimate dictator of uh, uh, you know the the practices and the values inherent in a church. I mean, there are small churches that are biblical and strong and doing great work and making a huge impact, and and there are small churches that are small for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And there are big churches that are big, but they're still uh, having a huge impact and staying focused on. Uh, God's word, the Bible, and teaching the message of Christ and being the hope of, of Christ to the world. And then there are other large churches that have lost their focus. So I, I don't think it's necessarily size related. I think for us, the larger you get, the less you focus on your size. We don't ever talk. You've talked about the size of our church in this podcast more than I have in years. I don't mm. ever talk about how big our church is. Mm. To our church, we don't. there's not a value for us. Right. Uh, we don't even report our numbers anymore. Like we don't, we don't, we count so that we know how we're doing at different locations. Right. You know, like in kind of other you know, gaps or the things that that we're missing, but we're, we we fight really hard to not find our sense of security in any kind of a ministry scorecard, and mm-hmm. to find it, you know, more in um, the life change that Christ can do, and so. Yeah, there's definitely critis- there, there are strengths and weaknesses to a large church. A large church can accomplish a, a lot together. Right. A large church can make a huge impact in the community. Um, you know, a large church can be uh, you know a place where there's uh, lots of serving opportunities, places to leverage your gift, where you can focus in more on what God has called you to do as a part of that community, and um, it can be a place where because there's more people um, involved in their specific gift uh, or they're able to specialize more, you know, usually you end up with just incredible teaching, teaching environments, incredible music and worship environments mm-hmm. because people are able to specialize. But there's also weaknesses, right, in, right. in larger environments. And, and uh, so, yeah, you know, if you have to have a coffee with your pastor every week to feel like you have a, a really, mm-hmm. although, you know, what's interesting is people bring this up, but but we all know you can't have a relationship with a hundred people. Mm-hmm. You can't. So the idea that there's a pastor of a church of a hundred who has coffee and breakfast and dinner with a whole hundred hundred people in his co- I know those pastors. I was that pastor. That's not possible. Mm-hmm. So you know, unless you're at a church of twenty, pretty fast, you're at a place where you're actually not getting right some of that personal attention you may think you are. Right? It's just right. Impo- we're not wired up to be able to do that. Right. Right. So. Um, but I look at the book of Acts and, and I see in Acts this, you know, temple gatherings, larger group gatherings, group gatherings, smaller group gatherings. You also see in the book of Acts, you know, 3,000 baptized in one day. I mean, the capital C church certainly was a mega church from the very beginning. Right. And, you know, you read on in the latter part of the book of Acts where, uh, uh, you know, that the church in Jerusalem had grew into the thousands and thousands, you know, mm-hmm. like, so... I just tend to think it's more about what you're focused on and what you emphasize and 
how you go about leveraging your unique strengths and abilities. And I'm a big believer in small churches and the impact they can have. And I'm a big believer in large churches and the impact they can have. And I just, I just say, like, why does it have to be either or? Right. I agree. One of the things that you've uh, um, been able to do is to create, you know, multi-site, uh, you know, different campuses where you know, I think for a lot of people that's somewhat kind of a new concept where there's a, another campus, but you're on video and there's a you know, campus pastor that's there. What are some of the unique challenges of being a multi-site campus that leaders should be aware of and certainly staff members should be aware of if they're a part of a church that spans over several different cities, in your case, countries? Um, but how do you keep the unity of the staff while expanding the staff at the same time? Hmm. Well, I feel like culture is becomes really critical. Like the For me, the, the biggest value of... Um, launching other campuses as opposed to planting new churches is probably cultural, meaning our church staff culture, our our perspective on Jesus, the health that we bring. Like when it comes to the gospel and Jesus and salvation, we could just plant another church and they would carry the same gospel, but eventually they would have a different culture, mm. church culture. So, you know, why do you launch campuses? And I think one reason is because health tends to produce health, right? And so mm-hmm. if you have a healthy culture and you can figure out how to reproduce that healthy culture in people, then, yeah. you know, because so many of our churches get derailed because of unhealthy church and staff cultures mm-hmm. and they, they eat each other up. You know, they destroy right. each other, right? right? Rather than working towards something in the future. So I feel like for us... Uh, we've started a leadership college now. We've uh, really started to invest personally, myself personally, our key, le- all of our key leaders in our church uh, at the highest leadership table are the key teachers in this college. And we're hmm. owning, reproducing into uh, people those core aspects of health that we see modeled in the Bible and modeled in, uh, in the best practices in church life and at, and at our specific church because we want to raise up from within mm-hmm. and then and then send out. So, you know, a few examples like my buddy Daryl, who uh, is a, leads a, a location for us in Kingman, Arizona, that's hmm. killing it. I mean, they're killing it. Reach People are coming to faith. Lives are being touched. They're serving the poor. Huge recovery ministry. They're killing it. But Daryl came to faith at Central. His big claim to fame was, uh, you know, he's on a TMZ video where he's sucker punching some guy in a pool. You know, like that's where he came from and and, and um, came out to, to Las Vegas from Southern California, dealing drugs on the side, a lot of different things, came to faith, his life got flipped around. You know, he's gotten some biblical education and training and framework and uh, in our leadership academy and God is just using him in a huge way. So he's leading at our Kingman location. Then I look at uh, somebody that he led to faith, um, a guy named Matt, who's you know stunt rider, motorcycle rider, UFC, amateur UFC fight mm. guy who came, came to faith there. And he's now leading another location that we have, same story. And to me, I feel like this is the benefit of sort of one church, multiple locations when you get that culture going. And it take, it's a long time, right? It takes a long time, but you're raising people up, leading them to faith, raising them up over five, seven, 10 years mm. to a place of maturity where you're then sending them out. Well, they're 
They've right. come up under your, like you have a specific culture at real life right. and it's healthy and it's, there's, there's uh, so much that's beautiful about it. As people come up under that, you can send them out and they're still part of your family, but they haven't left your, your family, you know, like mm-hmm. you're still connected. Right. There's a little bit of safety net there. Right. You know? Right. Oh, that's so good. And, you know, just to piggyback or to, to even backtrack a little bit to the church and your story. I mean, you have such a passion for it because it has impacted your life in a profound way. As you would say, the church saved your life. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how, and that really is kind of the driving thing in your life of having seen your life transform. And as a result, why you're so passionate about church multiplication. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at the church and find weaknesses. You know, my mother would always uh, say, hey, the church would be perfect if there weren't any people in it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we see all the all the dynamic, right? We see um, how things could be different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing frustrates me more than pastors and others who love to just take shots at whatever church that doesn't fit their little small-minded framework. And, mm-hmm. you know, like that stuff drives me crazy because the church is supposed to be the hope of the world. You know, it's supposed to be, Jesus is the hope of the world, but the church is really is his hands, his feet, his representative to the world. When people walk in a church, they're supposed to encounter and experience the love of God, the power of community coming together, God's spirit working and moving in the midst of his people. And um, that, that was my experience. I came to church out of four years of addiction. I was at that crossroads that many listeners will understand where you just feel like I'm either going to go crazy or I'm going to uh, go to jail or I'm going to die or I'm going to get help. And I finally walked into church at 17 on my own terms. I'd grown up around the church, but it's the first time I'd walked in on my own terms. I found my way to a little Bible study. And these people, they weren't like recovery experts. They didn't know what all the right words, but they listened to me. They prayed for me. They didn't give up on me. They walked with me. They coached me. And, and frankly, like the greatest gift they gave me is they showed me how to live sober. Because if you, if you haven't been sober in four years... You don't even know how to interact in a world anymore without being uh, intoxicated at some level. Like you, you don't know hmm. what it looks like to laugh at jokes, to interact with people, to handle conflict in a way that's normal. Yeah, you know, you just haven't. Right. You've you've lost all that ability. They didn't really do it intentionally. They just did it by living their life. And and I was a student watching them learning again right. how to be in it because this for me was like thirteen to seventeen. So I'm learning what it means to be an adolescent right. and how to interact with the world sober, you know, mm-hmm. by watching them. And so, yeah, God used the people of the church to save my life. So, so I'm passionate about the church. It may not be perfect, but there's so much more good that happens through the church than bad. And um, there's so much more, there's so many more churches that are faithful. There's so many more churches that are making a huge impact in their community rather than the headline church that got caught up in a scandal on the other side of the country. And that becomes the only thing we think about or talk about. Well, what about the three or 400,000 other churches where there was no scandal? They're doing a great job. They're handling money with integrity. They're touching people's hearts. And you know, like right. to me, that's the real story. Right. And that's the vast majority right. of churches. Isn't it refreshing right now at the time that we're recording this, our country is so fascinated and fixated upon the life of Billy Graham and here's a guy that was controversial at times, but scandal-free. 
Yeah, amazing. And oftentimes the news cycle is filled with the ways that our, our people get it wrong. And what a fun thing to just reminisce about a guy that got it right. What's your reflections on the life of Billy Graham and the legacy that he left? Well, I think uh, you said it well. His integrity was just... Um, and it's not perfect. I mean, right. if you dig into his life, like any life, sure. right? There, sure. there are flaws. There, there are things, you know, in the <laughs> '60s or '70s. You'll read about. You're like, I wish you would have done more. I wish you would have done more for civil rights. I wish you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But at the same time, we weren't there in those environments, mm-hmm. and um, we certainly. It's easy to kind of look from the outside in, but I think still just that long, steady faithfulness. Mm. I think, you know, his impact was unbelievable. Uh, they, they say his world, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association estimates his worldwide audience was about 2.2 billion people. Mm. And that 3.2 billion people is what they reported last week. Is his estimated, 3.2 million people is his estimated uh, impact as far as people who made decisions for Christ <laughs> at his rallies. 180 different, um, you know, uh, countries i mean wow. six continents you know mm-hmm. like amazing right mm. but i don't feel like people are talking about that right now mm. that's what's fascinating to me it feels like people are talking about his integrity uh-huh. more than his impact right and i think there is a lot to learn in that statement right there because right. we love to focus our lives on impact what do we do and how much impact are we having yeah. we don't talk a lot about integrity but at the end of your life impact is maybe not as important as integrity, especially in the ministry sense. Wow, that's that's right? really good, and you're you're exactly right because it stands in such contrast to all the other headlines that we read. And here's a guy I, we, we can't say enough about. I read that line about his conversion impact from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. That's the only place I, I haven't researched, but it's the only place I I saw talking about it. Yeah, nobody else was talking about right. it. They were talking about. He was scandal-free, had integrity, right. you know, like right. obviously he had huge global impact. So oh, I think man. for for me at least, it it's a great reminder that look, you, you know, you don't. Most of us aren't Billy Graham. <laughs> Nobody's mm-hmm. Billy Graham, right? Most of us, myself included, won't have an impact anywhere even remotely close to a speck of what Billy Graham did. However, like you don't have to be the most talented. You don't have to be the most gifted. If you just maintain your integrity over the long haul, mm-hmm. I mean, you just kind of outlast everybody else. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that mm-hmm. is what frames a legacy, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's well said. Let me shift gears just for a second about your, back to the church's impact in Las Vegas. Uh, back in October of 2017, we had this horrific shooting um, there at the at the Mandalay Bay. and. You guys were one of the churches that was front and center to provide a lot of help and a lot of resources. Would you walk us through some of the things that you saw happen as a result of that and the way the church was able to step up and maybe some of the impact over the past few months? Well, yeah, so October 1, you know, in the midst of this mass shooting, almost 500 people injured, you know, more than 50 people um, murdered it was unbelievable for us kind of right in the middle of it um we had uh some people in our church that were directly impacted one uh the officer that was there that was off duty uh ended up passing away in the arms of his wife and um 
they were a part of our church community and we held their memorial service. So, uh, and on top of that, there's a lot of relational connections, one or two apart, and then a tremendous amount of um, people that are first responders, either medical or uh, police or fire that were directly involved and connected in the, the aftermath of all of that. So, you know, it's something to go through for sure. And I think the thing that God told me through that whole thing, and it really gets to the title of, of your book, Rusty, which is fantastic, Better Together. But one of the things I said the first night, the first night it happened, so, you know, it happened Sunday night late. So Monday night, we all came together as a church. It was packed out. By the way, we had like 5,500 people packed out, like literally standing outside everywhere across our our location, but 180,000 online. Mm. It kind of felt like the whole um, country was feeling that weight mm -hmm. of like just the enormity of that mm -hmm. many 500 injured. You know, like it was crazy. Right. And so we got together and I had not scripted this out, but I, I just walked out and I had all these thoughts scripted and, and sometimes you have your best uh, God moments that he gives you in the moment and everything you write down is out the window and that's kind of what happened mm. for me that night I walked out with all these things written down and then just scrapped it and talked from my heart you know and first thing that came out of my mouth was look there's only one way we're going to get through this and that's together mm -hmm. you know and that's your book better together mm. like that's it's community and I think that was really the message that I championed. I don't know why this happens. I don't know why God allows evil to run rampant in the world at times. I certainly don't know why we go through uh, crises and catastrophes. I don't know why um, young people with a whole future in front of them die. You know, I, I do not know why these mm -hmm. things happen. There are some things I do know from the Bible that, that I believe that God is good you know, that God uh, is moving and working, that God can work through all of this. There's a lot I don't know, but I don't think it's in answers that we find comfort in those moments. It's in community. It's in together. And mm. uh, that's where we find strength. And that's that's what we found um, over the course of the next 60 days. And I think as we really just tried to serve and give back and, and pour into our community, we've, we've really had a lot of favor from our community over the last um, season. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I'm very grateful mm -hmm. for that. You know, I hate, I hate the fa families that have gone through so much loss. Now I'll tell you, here's a, here's a, a God story. Mm -hmm. One God story just out of it that I mm -hmm. thought was really powerful is um, one of the individuals who lost somebody that, uh, that she loved dearly in the midst of all of that. Um, when it was all, um, over we tried to walk with them with their family and and then this holiday season we uh we had set a goal to try and sponsor thousands of kids that were under resourced in our area to provide christmas for them and you could sponsor a kid for uh so many dollars a uh as a commitment to sponsor that child and she sponsored i think it was 58 kids for the 58 people Mm. who died along with her husband in that mass shooting. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Wow. Right, Faith. Uh-huh. And, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's so overwhelming when you look at uh, the enormity of it all. And I know that you've been in contact with 
a pastor in Parkland, Florida, that's dealing with some a crisis right now with the school shooting down there. Mm-hmm. And and as you were telling us before we started recording, you guys have have captured all the the data that you put together and all the content that you put together to minister to your city. If somebody's out there listening to this and happens to have a crisis happen in their community, how do they get a hold of you guys? Just go to your website and reach out. Yeah, or just uh, you know. Uh, call the. You can certainly go to the website. Call the church. You can email, and um, we can we can we can help. You know, especially if it's a church or somebody going through it. We don't have all the answers. Uh, my friend, Pastor David Hughes at Church by the Glades in Florida, that are just down the street uh, from Parkland and kind of directly affected by uh, the mass shooting at that school. Mm-hmm. You know, as he and I have talked, it's it's that that club that's kind of navigated from a church standpoint through the dynamics of a mass shooting, that's a club nobody wants to be a part right. of. But, you know, when you're in it um, and you're just trying to respond at so many things coming at you, you know, it's really helpful if you've got some of the experience of others who've gone through it to maybe shortcut your response time a little bit and help you get, get quickly into right. helping people than trying to figure out what to do, you right. know. Well, that's that's I know very helpful for them and for many others. So let me uh, let me talk about something here. That's that's big for our people. Here we are living outside of Los Angeles, and there's a lot of people from our area that drive to your area and create commerce and income and the economy for Las Vegas because of the weekends that we go over there and spend money, and so. From a pastor's perspective in Las Vegas, seeing all these people come over from Los Angeles who have this idea that what happens in Vegas will stay in Vegas, what would you tell them? And what are some fun things they can do and some obvious things they should avoid knowing that it's going to be destructive? And I guess just from a pastor's perspective, what would you say to all of us that travel to Vegas with the assumption, let's go have a great weekend and nobody will know? Yeah, well, you know, it always it always follows us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever we do, and I think uh, I think you can have a great time in Vegas. You can see shows, you can have fun. Um, you know, there may be different uh, perspectives and opinions on gambling. Uh, my perspective and opinion on sort of gambling and that whole world, being in it in that world is, you know, it's rarely a problem until it becomes a secret, and once you start to make something a secret. That's a problem, mm-hmm. and I feel like if you're if you're going to Disneyland and you're budgeting a certain amount of money and you're spending it, if you're going to Vegas, you're budgeting a certain amount of money and you're spending it. Good for you. Hope you had a great time. Don't do anything immoral. Don't do anything you regret later. Right. And uh, and come to church on the weekend. So yep. nobody comes to Vegas thinking church, but we got campuses all over Las Vegas. There's some <laughs> great churches in Vegas. And, you know, it could be a great way to wrap up, you know, just a fun weekend to get away, you know, with friends. So Vegas gets this kind of reputation uh, for all the all the bad things or all the wrong things. Now, I, I often joke with people, hey, natives don't act this way. People that that live in Las Vegas don't really act this way. It's people that come from everywhere else. They're the ones who act like they never would at home, and then they go back home. And so, you know, Vegas gets a reputation, not so much, but we, we facilitate, but other people, mainly from the Midwest, 
get out there and go crazy, right? So I was just in Texas, and I'm like, don't look down on me. These are your people who get on planes and come in and do all this stuff. Right. We don't do that if we live there. You can't survive like that. You would lose your mind in 90 days if you live like some right. people live on a weekend in Vegas, right? You know, long term. So uh, so there's two Las Vegases, really. There's the Strip. And it's kind of, there's, there's yeah, some things you don't want to get into, but a lot of it's tame enough and can be fun and food and shopping. Right. F- food and shopping are really the number one income mm-hmm. income uh, generators for the city now, more than gambling. But there's that side. But then there's a whole, there's another Las Vegas, you know, two million people right. in the valley just navigating normal everyday life. And it's right. fun sometimes if you're there to get over to a church or to pop out on a weekend just to realize like, wow, there is... And the majority of them are from Southern California. I think mm-hmm. literally the, the slight majority of the of the whole have roots in Southern California. So you recognize a right. lot of people. That's good. And I, just a, a shameless plug here for a, a restaurant there. Most people think that you got to go and spend a ton of money at a restaurant on yeah. the Strip. There is a place there, and it's by Bobby Flay, called Bobby's Burger Bar, right there on the Strip. It's the best hamburger you'll ever have. And oh, it's cheap. It's that's awesome. Unbelievable. So, and my favorite restaurant is in downtown, and uh, it's really trendy. They just expanded it so they can seat more, and it's called Carson's Kitchen. Oh, Carson's Kitchen. Okay. Um, get the bacon jam. Write me to thank me later. <laughs> it will change your life. Okay. Last question. You and I occasionally like to talk about jazz. Yes. Uh, my kids give me a hard time for listening to it. So does my wife. Yes. Because they think it's just noise. They think it's for old people. Total nerds. You turned uh, my attention to a PBS documentary done by Ken Burns, which is like 20 hours long yes. or whatever, about the history of jazz, which is fascinating. I've watched it twice. Though, oh, I my goodness. I watch it every time I get on a plane. I knock out a little bit more because I can't watch it in the house. Nobody wants to see it. Um, but... From a novice perspective, what should people listen to if they're interested in jazz? And then from somebody who's played jazz, um, listens to a lot of jazz, who's like upper echelon of jazz? Mm. And you think, oh, this is this is the deep water here. Yeah, well, you know, I, I see, I feel like um, jazz sometimes just gets a rap for being kind of old, marching band style, mm-hmm. ancient, dead music. And I, I think... Uh, the beauty of jazz is as you get into sort of what what jazz, you know, at its core, what is jazz? Like jazz is supposed to be improvisation, meaning um, these are musicians that have played uh, the, the, in this lane of music so long that they don't need to know the music. They, they know it by ear, they know it by heart, and they play it different every single time. Right. And then you put a bass player and a drummer and a sax player and a trumpet player piano player guitar player all in a all in an environment where they're playing the songbook and it's like magic that happens only once in mm-hmm. that moment you know that's part of the dynamic of of jazz and then it gets you know sometimes uh, historically these things get recorded in such a way that are just uh, uh, amazing but it doesn't get repeated in that moment and I think I think understanding that at least for me as I understood that that helped me start mm-hmm. kind of listening for what you know, it's not like they're just oh they're just playing a song. I don't get it. You know, do, 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 do. well you sort of realize there's this this kind of classic jazz standard songbook, and uh, and and that's a whole world of kind of understanding those songs, and they're played different a million 
times, you know, right. by different groups and musicians and the mix of them. Right. It all comes together. I've probably put everybody to sleep by now. I'm fascinated. I, I, I just feel like it's uh, it's amazing. So, you know, you listen to... Yeah, so when you listen to uh, you know when you listen to jazz, it's uh, there's there's so many levels, and I feel like the most important le- level is you listen to the rhythm section, the drums and the bass, and a great jazz rhythm section has a drum and a bass section that are just in sync, and they're just totally, it's just lined up, it's next level, it's magic, and then layered on top of that, you got you know improv and people trading back and forth on the piano and the horns and. So there's a whole other thing than just, you know, this music that sounds old-fashioned. Right. There's more going on It's there. a conversation. It's a conversation. That's right. And uh, I think that's part of what kind of opened my uh, mind and heart to jazz. You know, 1% of the population likes jazz. Uh, or, <laughs> I think or, they're sitting or, in this room. Or, or less. Uh, most of them are musicians, <clears throat> right? Right. And that, a lot of why jazz, you know, jazz, I think, in some ways, like jazz is, is improvisation comes out of you know, the big band players that were in these larger orchestras playing very specified pieces night after night after night, set after set after set, and they're just bored out of their ever-loving minds. Mm-hmm. you know. And at some point, they all start pulling off to these side mm-hmm. venues after the work night's done at you know 2 in the morning and play into the wee hours of the morning. Right what they want to with friends around the framework of these same songs because they all know it. So, I think one of the best places to start is Charlie Brown Christmas. Yes. Because it's Vince a... Vince Giraldi cool. trio. He's the real deal. He is the real deal. And then you start to expand from that. The other stuff that he's done is fantastic. Yes, it is. Um, okay, so I was teaching... I love that one. A couple weeks ago, I was teaching uh, right before Christmas, and I said, I love Christmas music, and I walk around the house with uh, my phone in my back pocket, driving my wife crazy all year long listening to Christmas music. You know, she hates it because it's like I'm a walking jukebox, you know, or, or uh, a stereo. And then I made this comment, which, you know, our entire church just died laughing, and I didn't even realize what I'd said. I said, you know, like Charlie Brown, Christmas, Vince Giraldi Trio, my favorite Christmas album ever. And so I said, I'm walking around, I got Charlie Brown coming out of my backside. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized after I said that, I'm like, oh, that sounds really bad, and I didn't mean it. Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, that sets us up for our final three questions. moving up now, we can edit that. Well, no, 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 it's great, because... I, I'm, I'm going to give you three questions, and the the last one is always a faux pas you've you've made on stage, and I think that can serve as that right there. There you go, fantastic. Unless you have another one you'd like to share, um, I got to share my favorite jazz album. Okay, if you're getting started in jazz, and if you like blues, Kenny Burrell, um, Midnight Blue. That's a great Kenny Burrell, Stanley uh, Turrentine, but Kenny Burrell, Midnight Blue. I do not know that one. It's okay. just nice jazzy. It's a guitar kind of led, okay. or a bluesy. Uh, kind of feel, but I feel like it's a good crossover. Okay. Uh, sort of like... Yeah. Oh, I like that. All right, I'm writing that down. Okay, so question number one, what's an uh, what's a book you're reading right now that you're enjoying? Um, so I am... Uh, huh, I, uh, I'm reading two books right now that I'm enjoying. Thomas Friedman's Thank You for Being Late, uh, which is interesting. He's the guy that wrote The World is Flat. Okay. And I'm not far enough into it to have much of an opinion, but I've just started that. And then uh, I just started uh, N.T. Wright's book on Paul, and uh, which I think is I think came out, I mean, within the last week. Right. You know, uh, it's more it's not as academic book, but it's a little more to everyday okay readers. Right. It's and it's not so much a, a, a looking at 
the text of of Paul as it's trying to piece together a little bit of a biography okay. of Paul from his standpoint. And so whether you agree with all the NT right, you know, there's debate about NT rights, theology, or interpretation of this or that. Like for me, the value is well, here's a guy who spent his whole life studying this era. I don't have to agree or disagree with anything that he says to learn some things about that era when he's trying to bring it all together into a biography of Paul. And, mm. and I'm excited about kind of digging into that. So I've, I've been reading that. That sounds good. Okay. What's an app you're using right now you enjoy? An app? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I use the Life360 app. Yes, to track your kids. I track my kids <laughs> on it. I actually track my wife. I like to know when everybody's going to be home, where everybody is. And uh, I love that. So app. I love that. It app. bothers them to no end, but I know where they are. Well, and then like one day, Lori she screenshot her phone and showed it to me, my wife, and it said, um, "Judd just arrived home. His top speed was like eighty-two or something." I'm like, "Hey, it tells you the top speed, so I don't have all the notifications, but she can actually see how fast I go, which I love for my daughter." That's but right. That, I feel like I'm really ripped off That's here. Right. For me, I said I was passing an eighteen wheeler or That's something. Surely, yeah. You were avoiding traffic. I was trying to just live, you know, to get over in the other lane to slow back down to the speed limit of 65. They'll never understand. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for all the time, wisdom, insight, friendship, writing the forward on the book. It's the best part of the book. So no way, man. That, man. The book's great. Really appreciate it. Better that. together, Rusty George. Make sure to grab it if you haven't. It's excellent, excellent. And just so much there that I think can lead to so much else for people in their lives if they'll lean into it and begin to live it out. So thank you for writing it. Thanks yeah. for the time. I appreciate it, man. Love for you uh, to share this. Everybody who's listening right now, pass it on to friends and family and uh, get the word out. Uh, Jed's got some great nuggets here for you. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us. Thanks so much for listening. If you would, take a moment and share this with somebody who might benefit from it. And if you have even more time, sit down and write a review on this on iTunes. It really does help a lot. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next month.